The stories of surveyors, visionaries, and even the schemers who helped put Canada together come alive when you ride the historic Rocky Mountaineer. It's a marvel, and there's a reason that this has become one of the most famous trains in the world. Coming up, we hear what it's like to introduce a new generation to the fun of traveling on a scenic railroad. Or head for the islands. There's hundreds of them off the coast of British Columbia. And pick one that's just the right mix of nature and comfort for a great summer getaway. It's those little things that really feel like the islands to me. It feels like you're in your own little world. Explore what it means to be a global citizen as you go beyond your own borders. It's less the mindset that we pack and more the mindset that we unpack. And journey deep within America to discover what every city and state is proud to show you about who they are. I'm very obsessed with America, if you can't tell, and I wanted a piece of every city. All aboard. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating Canada Day and the 4th of July on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll hear how the Rocky Mountaineer train line helped to tie Canada together. And we'll pick our favorites from among the Gulf Islands in British Columbia. Plus, a sort of real-life Where's Waldo shares his enthusiasm for America after getting up close with people in each of the 50 states. He tried his hand at the local crafts in every major city in the USA. I am a sucker for historic and scenic train rides. And Canada has a train ride that is both, which captured the imagination of train lover and Grandpa Rick Antonson. He's written about the joy of this train, especially through the eyes of his 10-year-old travel buddy, his grandson, Riley. Rick's book is Train Beyond the Mountains. And Rick joins us now to share some of his memories about this train and why we might want to give it a whirl ourselves. Rick, thanks for being here. So good to see you again and nice to be able to talk about travel and to be in a time when people can plan again to cross borders or get out of the country or go throughout the states. Wonderful. It's great. And it's so wonderful to be sitting across from a person who has a Canadian accent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, your book, Train Beyond the Mountains, Journeys on the Rocky Mountaineer, it celebrates a remarkable train line that really helped tie Canada together. It seems to me it's important historically for the past, and it's also important touristically today for people who want to enjoy the amazing Canadian Rockies. Let's start with the history. What's the big deal about this train, the Rocky Mountaineer? Well, there was a national dream, which was to have then the colony of British Columbia become a province and join all of Canada. It really kept it from becoming part of Washington State. And the commitment of the government in Ottawa was to build a railway. So the Canadian Pacific Railway is historic, but the challenges of the geography through the Rocky Mountains, which today is celebrated because of the scenery, but at the time, you're told as an engineer, you've got to make a tunnel through there. You've got to go down the Fraser Canyon. Very, very difficult, which makes for a spectacular route for the Rocky Mountain. And year. roughly what age was that? What years was the? We're in the 1880s, 1890s. 1880s, They're doing 90s. the surveys. You know, the same thing was going on in, in Italy when Italy was uniting. They had to lash it together by train lines. Of course, the same thing was going in the United States with our Western movement. Absolutely, And yes. I didn't know we could have had British Columbia had it not been for your engineers that tied it to Eastern Canada. Well, and, and, <laughs> and it was dodgy for a long time. And in fact, when the, when the route didn't get railed properly quickly, there was talk, well, maybe we'll go back and join Washington State, become part of the U.S. So that was a very real imaginable. You know, back 150 years ago, the engineering of this was was quite a challenge, and the Rockies are a formidable barrier. What were some of the uh, challenges they just had from an engineering point of view to accomplish this and tie Vancouver with the rest of Canada? 
part of it was that they were working 12 months of the year, which is great when you're in the summer, you can get the crews everywhere, and then all of a sudden it's winter and you're dealing with snow slides. And they didn't have yet snow sheds so they could protect the rails. So even the supply trains would get stuck in the snow. And it was very, very difficult. You've got steep inclines that they now have worked around. They did the spiral tunnels, which travelers on the Rocky Mountaineer get to go through, which were a Swiss engineering marvel where you go in and circle around. And they engineered that 100 years ago, more than that. Because I've seen that in Norway. They've got a spiral tunnel of a train line. They do indeed. In fact, I was uh, just in Norway and on the train. It's just like, what a concept, a corkscrew to go up and then carry on. And you got to gain that altitude somehow. And they started at either end and met within a couple of feet of one another. That they, blows me away that they could do that then, 100 years that ago. That they could do it today. <laughs> yeah, still exactly. Rick Antonson's latest book is Train Beyond the Mountains, Journeys on the Rocky Mountaineer. His website is rickantonson.com. Rick, what was your work as vice president at Rocky Mountaineer? Well, I was there at the start in the early 1990s, so three years. And so I was, the start of the, the, start, tour, the sightseeing version of it with the glass domes and all of that. That's correct. So my job was the sales and the marketing, and I often say all the loose ends because it was a startup. Right. And the train had been designed to take people through the Rockies in particular during the daylight. So you begin in Banff, and then you're on the train all day. You overnight in hotels in Kamloops, and on the train again to Vancouver. Or you can do it in right. reverse. So it was a really exciting time. We were learning everything, getting it going. So here it is, you know, almost 30 years later, and I wanted to go back, see all the changes, because by now they have those gorgeous domes. As one traveler called it, it's the glass train, because you can look yeah. everywhere, almost feel like oh, you touch the mountains. I just love that. I mean, Switzerland's really into that, and, and I right. like to sit there, and I, I kick my, my legs up on the ottoman in front of me, and I just go back, and I've got these glorious mountains cruising overhead because of that stunning. beautiful, stunning dome. And, of course, that gig of yours as vice president of Trainline is long gone, but you've got recent memories of sharing this with your grandson, Riley. Tell us more about that. That's a pretty exciting way to, to do it. One of the things that I've, I've learned of recent is something that, that I would call intergenerational travel. But one of the fellow passengers on Rocky Mountaineer talked about parents, grandparents traveling with the younger generation, and he called it legacy travel. I love the term. He said, you know, most people, when they pass, they leave a checkbook legacy. Hmm. They're leaving behind some money. But he said, what a grandparent traveling with a grandchild does is leave the legacy of travel, the insights. And another passenger has said to me, you know, Rick, this trip means the world to you today. In 20 years, it'll mean the world to your 10-year-old grandson, Riley. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Antonson about Canada's popular and historic Rocky Mountaineer train ride. And Rick is a former president and CEO of Tourism Vancouver. He served as an ambassador for the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. And he was a vice president at the train line itself, Rocky Mountaineer. His book is Train Beyond the Mountains, and it raves about that venerable train line in Canada. Rick, what were some of the great moments as a grandfather on that train with Riley? He initially walked down and found the observation deck at at the back. So you've got two levels. The top is the dome where everybody is, and then you take turns going down for a lovely meal service. But at the back of the lower level is a, say, 10-foot by 10-foot observation deck. Riley became fascinated with that. He'd leave behind his electronics, which I was worried he'd spend too much time on, and he'd say, I'm going to the deck. And we'd go down there, and he'd get in the corner, and he would spend literally 
hours, the wind blowing through his face and into his eyes and all, all over his hair, he would look at dilapidated buildings and say, somebody once lived there. What happened, Grandpa? He'd wave at a school bus at a crossing when we were going along. He said, those kids are going to school. I'm and this not. Is, this is at an open-air observation deck open air on the observation train. Open-air observation deck on I, the train. There's a beautiful photograph in your book about that. <laughs> I love it because... One of my least favorite things about a European train is the sign next to the window that says, it's dangerous to lean out. Because I've always got that window down and I'm always leaning out. And I think, okay, I'll, I'll be well aware. If something's going to come off and decapitate me, I'll pull my head in. <laughs> but the Rocky Mountaineer has those observation decks. And it's terrific. The other thing is that there are people gathering there all the time. Yes. And, and they would talk about other trains they've traveled all over the world. Mm -hmm. They'd talk about how they wish they brought their grandchild along on a trip and how they're planning to do that because they would see, because most of the audience is a sort of an over 50 crowd, a little bit of the cassette era. Yeah. And I had lots of other people volunteering to be the grandparent for a couple of hours if I wanted to go on my own or read a book. And what you wrote about in your book, Train Beyond the Mountains, was that each mile of the track uncovers stories of historic characters, pioneers, explorers, surveyors, schemers, and visionaries. What a treat for a grandpa to have his grandson there and to be wonderstruck by the guys who did this back in an age when it really was quite an astounding engineering accomplishment and important for Canada. Important for Canada, important for North America. It established that in the West there would for sure be this border between the two countries and all of the juxtapositions that have come from that. But it's also a story of indigenous peoples who were right. were hosts, often in a very interrupted way. Right. But they were hosts to the newcomers with European backgrounds. That didn't always work out well for indigenous peoples. And the, the train commentary on board does a very good job of familiarizing travelers with the history that goes thousands of years back. Rick, we've just got a couple more minutes, and I want to talk about the Rocky Mountaineer today as a touristic experience. How is it designed so that you get immersed in the nature? Tell us about the actual experience. It's a marvel, and there's a reason that this has become one of the most famous trains in the world. It's extraordinarily comfortable to be on board, but it's the overarching glass domes that give you a sense of constantly being drawn. You, you actually, you can relax and read or talk to other people, but you're, you're always being drawn visually to take a, a peek through the dome. And the routes go Banff, Kamloops, Vancouver, or reverse. They go between Jasper and Kamloops and Vancouver. Grandson Riley and I were on this as well. From Vancouver, you overnight in Whistler. Then next day, you overnight in Quesnel. So you're through the Caribou where the gold rush happened. Fascinating stuff. And then up to Jasper. We had the opportunity to spend more time in the Rockies after that, which really rounded out this rough sort of circular tour. Everyone you encounter was having what many said was the trip of a lifetime. This is an amazing uh, experience from a travel and a train lover's point of view. If the awards that the Rocky Mountaineer has won is an indication. You mentioned in your book, you're awarded as the world's leading travel experience by train, by the World Travel Awards Association, the world's leading luxury train award three times. It's amazing. And as I think about it, a lot of times I like to sleep on trains, but I'm glad on this particular train, you don't want to miss the scenery. So you have overnight stops, right? That's absolutely true. You're in awe and you're a little humbled by the geography and you're thrilled to be on a journey. If there's ever a time to be in the moment, it's on a train. And a train is like 
a continuum of moments after moments after moments. And from a practical point of view, it starts and ends, regardless of which way you're going, in places where you could enjoy a little extra time also. Let's close our conversation just if you can think of a favorite moment you had as Grandpa with Riley. You know, he said to me at one point, you're not as easy to travel with as I thought you'd be. And it reminded me sometimes how I became a grandfather in the moment, almost trying to smother him with my enthusiasms and tell him a whole bunch of other stuff. And I'll tell you, we, we just had a couple of weeks together and we were in Norway, which is my family heritage as well on my dad's side. So his, we got to his great, great grandfather's farm. And at the end, we're, we're flying home. And I said, gee, it's been two weeks together, Riley. He said, do you think we'll have separation anxiety when we get home? And he looked me in the eye and he said, you might. <laughs> that is great. Rick Antonson, thank you so much for joining us and continued happy travels. Thank you very much, and same to you. Safe passage on all your journeys. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. The seaside charm of BC's Gulf Islands. That's our next stop on Travel with Rick Steves. She was born on the Dakota Prairie and raised and schooled in New England. But when Chandler O'Leary and her husband landed in Tacoma, Washington, they knew they had found home. Chandler took a sketchbook with her everywhere she went. She turned her many visits to the nearby San Juan Islands of Washington State and the neighboring Gulf Islands of British Columbia into a guide. Her book, On Island Time, A Traveler's Atlas, is filled with her charming illustrations of small towns with candy-hued storefronts and the everyday images of life near the sea in the Pacific Northwest. Sadly, Chandler died of a severe case of pneumonia just a few weeks after we recorded our interview with her. So we present Chandler's Travel with Rick Steves interview about Canada's Gulf Islands as a tribute to her talent and memory. Thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, so we've got, I got to get the terminology right because we've got the same archipelago of islands and it's cut by the American-Canadian border. That's right. So south of the border, San Juans. Yep. North of the border, Gulf Islands. Yep. The body of water, which I used to always think of as Juan de Fuca Strait, uh, Strait of Georgia, Puget Sound, now collectively... The Salish Sea. The Salish Sea. Yep. And the Gulf comes from, it used to be called the Gulf of Georgia, but yeah. that's no more either. So I like the Salish Sea. And, I like the Salish and that's, Sea, too. that's to remember the original inhabitants, Yes, the, the Coast Americans. Salish peoples, and there are many different cultural groups there, but they have been there for millennia, so it's so nice to honor them. And I noticed in your book you talked about Native American culture, uh, especially, I think you find more of it in the Canadian side. Mm. You can actually see totem poles in the original place where they stood. Yes, it depends where you go, and it depends on which culture was there and what kind of carving they might uh-huh. do. But yes, there's so many examples everywhere from Vancouver up to all the way up to the tip of Vancouver Island and in between. Well, it's like a tide pool of nature and culture on a vast scale. And of course, the thing that makes these islands so characteristic, I think, is they're buffered from the open sea yes. by this massive island, yes. Vancouver Island. Let's start off with Vancouver Island. What do we know about Vancouver Island? Well, it is the largest island on the west coast of North America. And I've driven as much as you can drive on that island, and it is massive. It feels yeah. like you're driving forever. Um, it And it protects the smaller islands in the inland waters yeah. from the open Pacific. So it's kind of created this whole ecosystem and just conversely, on the wild side, you've got shipwrecks and massive salmon. The and graveyard just, of the Pacific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And I've always been mystified or enamored by the ocean side of Vancouver Island. But, yes. of course, most of the people and all the tourism is, most of the tourism is on the 
the lee side of the, yeah. uh, of the island. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's good a, to a, think a, of it that way. Uh, the, on the south tip, we have a little bit of Britain. Yes, we do in Jolly Victoria. You can have a cup of tea. You can sit under a totem pole with your cup of tea, if you please. It's this really interesting cultural pastiche of all these different different people who have been there throughout yeah. the years. Also, Chinese culture there, Hawaiian yeah. culture. Oh, yeah. Chandler, way at the far north of the region that we're calling the Gulf Islands mm-hmm. is a, a very popular place with yachters and... Uh, Maybe otters, too, but yachters for sure. And that's Desolation Sound. Yes. So there's up there are the Discovery Islands, which is this this huge archipelago in this this labyrinth of inlets and bays and sounds. And most of it can only be reached by boaters. Yeah. But there's a couple of islands in there that you can take a ferry to. There's Quadra Island and there's Cortez Island. My mom and dad lived for the islands and they ah. had a boat. And we would go to Desolation Sound and meet other boaters up there. And Uh, I remember when they would turn the corner and enter that sound, they would see a mountain on the on the horizon. It looked a lot like the Matterhorn. Ah, Mount Denman. Mount Denman, yeah. And they'd all put their thumb up, like (laughs) like their thumbs up. And it was just the now we're home. Yeah. And you know, it was this desolate it's called Desolation Sound, apparently by, by Spanish explorers when they got up there. And it is desolate, but it's also curiously warm. And I yes. swam up there, and there's just balmy water. Yeah. It, it's surprising how you have these little pockets that yeah. are different from everything that's yeah. around it, or little microclimates on some of the that's islands. It. Yeah. In fact, that part of the uh, British Columbia coast is called the Sunshine Coast, I think. I think that's a little bit of a lie. Yeah, that is. A, that's kind of like it's calling... It's more of a tourist it's slogan. It's like calling uh, Greenland, Greenland. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but when you go up the Sunshine Coast, uh, you get to literally the end of the road. Mm-hmm. And the very end of Highway 101 is a little town called Lund. Lund. And from there, it's the leaping off point for those places. For Desolation Sound, for yeah. For Desolation Sound. You know, and there's, it's funny, when you go to Lund, there's a sign that says, it says the end of the road, but then somebody's crossed out end and it says start. The start <laughs> of the road. Well, it depends on which way you look at it. But yeah. one thing I remember when I was a kid in the Gulf Islands was narrows. This is where mm-hmm. there's a narrow stretch, and when the tide is rushing, the water is forced through there, and it creates whirlpools, yes. and it creates a surf, and it creates all sorts of danger for a boat. My dad would, maybe he was just being dramatic for us kids, but he would go around in circles a couple of times to work up a full head of steam, and then we'd go crashing through that surf. But people now kayak through that. I, I, I'm not brave enough to do that. I, I do kayak sometimes, but not like that. I think you featured that in here. I guess yeah. you were sitting on the shore with your sketch pad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to kayak in very calm waters. You know, it occurred to me, your name is Chandler O'Leary. And I thought, what does Chandler mean? And I looked it up. And Chandler is a, a shop that outfits boaters, Boaters, right? yes. And so on my research trips to these islands and all my vacations up here, I, I see my name over and over ah, That's again. so good. I think it's so right. Chandler O'Leary was a gifted illustrator and creative author of a guide to Americana-themed road trips on the West Coast. Her most recent work is a traveler's atlas of the islands of Washington and British Columbia called On Island Time. Chandler passed away from a sudden illness just a few weeks after the book was published. You'll find links to Chandler's books, artwork, and her prior interviews with us at ricksteves.com radio. And you can view her urban art legacy on the streets of Tacoma, Washington. Chandler, when we think about it, we have to think about access. How are you gonna how are you gonna get up there? And well, of course, Vancouver, BC has has beautiful state-of-the-art ferries. I mm-hmm. mean, British Columbia really has cool ferries. It's really fantastic. And they cut right through the Gulf Islands, and you can uh, take a car. You can also um 
the cruise ships leave Seattle mm-hmm. and they leave uh, Vancouver. And there's an inland ferry that leaves Bellingham, right? Yes. Um, the, are you talking about the Alaska Marine yeah. Highway? Mm-hmm. Yes. So that you go right through the Inland Passage that way. And, and that's not a fancy cruise ship. That's a working boat. It is. And, uh, you like can a, pitch a tent on the can, deck. Yes. And people <laughs> love that. Talk about a great uh, <laughs> classic way to vagabond your way up the Inland Passage all the way to Alaska. Talk to me a little bit about the Gulf Islands proper. We've been talking about Vancouver Island and Victoria, which is the big tourist attraction, mm-hmm. uh, Desolation Sound, where yachters go. But you know, that whole body of, um, well, collection of islands between Victoria and Vancouver, just north of the border, the Gulf Islands. What are your highlights? What should we know about those islands? So what most people think of as the Gulf Islands or the southern Gulf Islands is this cluster, this mm-hmm. archipelago. It's it's the Canadian half of a larger archipelago that includes the San Juan Islands in Washington State. And the southern Gulf Islands are a major tourist destination for Canadians and for international tourists also. Salt Spring Island is probably Mm -hmm. the most famous. It's also the most populous. About 30,000 people living there, I believe. And it's kind of, there's a lot of backpackers there. There's a lot of kind of hippie types and wellness types because, Mm -hmm. of course, there are hot springs on the island. But it's a great place for uh, artsy types. There's a studio tour. Also farm, there's a lot of artisanal farmland there. There are heritage orchards there. They have an apple festival every October. That's just fantastic. Salt Spring Island. Salt Spring Island. Okay. So that's the one that everybody seems to know about. But there's a whole bunch of others that you can get to on a ferry. Then You don't mm-hmm. need your own boat. Um, there's an inter-island ferry that goes um, from Vancouver Island to Salt Spring to Maine Island mm-hmm. to Galliano Island mm-hmm. to Saturna Island and to Pender Island. Okay. And in there you'll find historic ports and charming farm farmsteads. And... Yes. You can kind of choose what fits your personality. If you want to get away from humans, go to Saturna Island. There's hardly anybody yeah. there and it's windswept and beautiful. If you want to have a spa day, go to Galliano Island. Uh, if you want to have the local history and the little quirks, go to Maine Island. There's a little right. tiny museum there, a little farm and stands. I, I, I love the um, kind of the cozy, romantic, old world charm. You go, you know, if you're biking around one of those islands, you'll find farm stands where they're selling, you know, um, homemade jams and chutneys mm-hmm. and, and vinegar on the honor system. On the honor system. I love it. Or bouquets of flowers or oh. eggs. You need eggs on yeah. your bike? I don't know, but they've got them. <laughs> and eccentric people. When I my memories are, you know, getting up in the morning, get in the dinghy, and go across the bay, and there's an eccentric old guy who innovated this kind of breakfast, like sort of a breakfast jack or something, where you got a piece of bread, a piece of cheese, an egg, a piece of ham, and then he cooks it in a coffee tin. And he had a thriving business That's going great. on. That's great. Yeah, and he was famous in the Bay. And oh, he was yeah. the eccentric old guy down there that was earning a living selling all the, the boaters their breakfast. That's fantastic. You know, the the other thing that's a tradition on some of these islands is hitchhiking. And you think about, oh, is this safe to hitchhike? But it absolutely is there. And in fact, on Pender Island and a few of the others, they have car stops that are kind of like bus stops. You can wait there, stick your thumb out, and hitch a ride. Tender, if we could just kind of, if you could just share with me your most memorable or enjoyable experience in the Gulf Islands? Oh, it's so hard to pick one. I know. But I think for me, it's finding all the little homemade quirks that people have. So they have funny mailboxes or they'll hang a Sasquatch upside down from a tree so you can find their driveway when you're looking for their house or, um, you know, a hockey stick with a flag coming off of it. Little homemade bus stops so their kids can wait for the bus without getting wet in the rain. It's those little things that really feel like the islands to me. It feels like you're in your own little world, but yeah. it's completely unique, and it's very—everybody's yeah. put their own mark on it. Yeah. 
I've got the same charm for, for going to these islands. I, I don't get a lot of souvenirs when I'm traveling. No. But I've got two things in my house that came from the, these islands that we're talking about. A beautiful example of pottery made on the island and also a beautiful embroidery oh, made wow. on the island. And every island seems to have its marketplace. If it has a community, they've got their, their summer market Absolutely. Uh, every Saturday or whatever. Yep. And that's when they all come together and they celebrate what they've been making, and what they want to share. That's right. I love that. They And they have things like free stores where people donate things and you can pick it up. And they have festivals to celebrate whatever they're growing there in that season. I just love that. Thank you so much. As a daughter of immigrants from India, Anu Taranath grew up in America feeling like she was caught between two cultures. Now she consults international travelers and coaches students at the University of Washington on how to deal with the discomfort and challenges they might experience in their travels and in their studies in other cultures. Dr. Taranath's book, Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World, has won a number of awards. It was even named one of the best travel books of all time by Oprah Magazine. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to look at how American travelers can be ready to build connections across cultures and foster a global perspective. Dr. Taranath, thanks for joining us. Hi there. I'll call you Anu. Is that okay? Yes, please. Now, we live in a country that is the dominant culture on this planet in a lot of ways, and I think it's natural for a country that lives in a, in a massive culture to tend to be ethnocentric, uh, as opposed to people who live in a small country, smaller countries, harder to think you're the norm. Uh, what's the value of Americans traveling and getting to know our world? Many Americans don't know too much about what happens outside of their borders. They haven't had to. And traveling is one way of making that kind of knowledge palatable and in front of you. It's right there. You can't change the channel. It's, it's right happening there. It's, right it's in, in front face. of you. Yeah. It's live. Right. What it means to be outside of your own borders and boundaries is you see the ways that people are doing incredible work fighting for the rights of their community. They're working to create space for people to live vibrant and joyful lives. That is humbling for Americans to see. Americans perhaps have a sense that we are the center of all that is good. And uh, no, actually, there's so much goodness around the world. You know, it's, it's reasonable for a very good, thoughtful you know, high-minded American to really believe that that we are the the pinnacle of goodness and that we have a, a unique angle on that. And it is quite humbling to travel. Uh, I, I always say India, which is your heritage, is my favorite country because it, it just really wallops my ethnocentrism. Yes. It makes me less self-assured. Self-assured, uh, it makes you have to question everything that you thought you knew about identity, power, what it means to have privilege in the world. You know, we have a sense these days that we're part of a global community, right? We all want to be global citizens. That's that's a buzzword, buzz phrase at universities mm -hmm. these days. And I think instead of simply going for Ethiopian on a Monday and having Vietnamese on a Thursday and kind of thinking that's what's that's what global citizenship looks like, I think it's actually more of an opportunity to think about the links between us and them. 
any us and them that you want to think of. Did you mean going to a restaurant for Ethiopian one yes. day? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's one way to be global. Right. You could be you could be an expert in that kind of globalism yes. and still be very insular. Absolutely, right? And so really rethinking what we mean about being a global citizen. Okay, well that's your mission. I suppose that's part of your reason for getting a paycheck at the University of Washington is help these students get the most out of their travel experience and that's very important for a well-rounded education, a higher education Absolutely. now in our country. Yes. So what might a student or a family sending a student abroad be more mindful about so that that student can get the have the right mindset? You got to pack a certain mindset to have yes. a good trip. What mindset should we pack? I would probably uh, shift that question a little bit and say it's less the mindset that we pack and more the mindset that we unpack. We've got a lot of unpacking to do as Americans. Um, Americans are enthusiastic and kind-hearted in so many ways. Americans often haven't had to struggle. Many Americans, I won't say all, but many Americans, especially those that I see on my programs, they haven't had to struggle as much as perhaps other kinds of Americans Mm -hmm. or many people around the world. And so how do you figure out who somebody else is in the world unless you think about what it's like to be them? How do you figure out what it's like to be someone in your community? So what is your challenge uh, these days with American students and and how they relate to the other 96% of humanity? I am so fortunate. My students are good-intentioned. They're thoughtful. They're kind. Many of my students come back from foreign study, from study abroad, rethinking travel itself. They're really glad that they went and had the opportunity to see and experience, but they're unhappy with the way that travel often unfolds with folks from the privileged global north going into perhaps less privileged global south environments, maybe on a, one can say, poverty tour, slum tour, to go and see things. And this is an awkward thing for me Mm. because I'm a a very fortunate person Mm -hmm. and I can travel anywhere I like and I like to go to the developing world and I like to walk through the barrio and talk to people and see people grinding their corn into, uh, you know, little cakes and uh, hear about their struggles and look at their adorable children and see the ladies down at the well with the jugs on their head. Those are the typical images Those are the that come typical up, right? Images, yeah. Right. But on, on, in a certain way, it's voyeurism. I have a round trip ticket, and yep. I can come home and contribute to a charity or whatever. But there's a matter of stewardship to me. If you're going to spend yeah. that kind of money and you really care about those people, you you need to come home and, to me, be a global citizen the way you live your life and the way you vote. I think of it as in terms of going from a me to a we mindset. Right? We are often thinking about ourselves and only ourselves. What happens if we widen the scope? I think the most incredible comment I've received from a student is somebody who came back from India with me and said, you know, I think the most important thing that I've learned here is that it's kind of just like my home. Wow. It's sort of different, of course, in so many ways, but it's also just filled with regular people doing regular things. And I did not know that before. It seems so small, but it's actually a very important, profound comment. We're all just trying to make it on this planet. It's so exciting to think that travel can actually be a good investment of time and energy if we can all learn more to have empathy with each other. Dr. Anu Taranath, best wishes with your work as a teacher with an ever more important topic. Thanks very much. You'll find a link to Anu Taranath's website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. 
Daniel Siddiqui found that graduating with an economics degree during a recession and no job offers required a few creative steps outside his comfort zone. He left home in California to meet the people of every major city in America and learn what they do for a living. He explains next on Travel with Rick Steves. Daniel Siddiqui has made a career out of visiting every major city in the United States again and again, landing him the title of the most traveled person in America. He figures he's been to each of the 50 states at least 20 times so far, and he's not slowing down. Daniel recently traveled to 50 major American cities and found time to work in each city. What started out as a post-college experiment to find a job has turned into a passion for uncovering the history and the culture that define what makes each place unique. He documents the most original aspects of each city in his book, Piecing Together America, serving the best features and craftsmanship of every major city. Daniel joins us now to explore the threads that connect us as a nation. Daniel, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Rick, for having me. So you've been to all 50 states at least 20 times each. Yeah, I like you said, I could probably keep on going because there's so much to discover. Now, I got to say, simple numbers don't really mean how much you've experienced in those places. So you could be in a city a hundred times and not really have had a great travel experience. What do you do to make sure that, uh, you know, the visit is real? Yeah, these are all authentic as they possibly can be because I focus on a particular assignment. For instance, this recent book, Piecing Together America, was about craftsmanship. And I wanted to learn hands-on from the locals and those who really carry on a legacy, whether it's making a surfboard in San Diego to graffiti art in New York City to making a crab mallet in Baltimore, Maryland. So I really focus on like the iconic industries and pastimes. You know, my dad was a piano technician and he was old school and he had all this, the crocus cloth and the mix of spit and glue and all sorts of stuff to make it just right on the piano, you know. And I get the sense that that old-fashioned craftsmanship, that that love of quality is sort of getting priced out by mass production and cheap imports and so on. You've made a study of craftsmanship around the United States. Do you feel like it's an endangered thing or is it young and vital and, and healthy? Oh, no, it's it's kind of a almost a lost art as a whole. But, of course, there's individuals still practicing it and trying to carry the legacies. Does a, does a craftsperson have to decide to make a financial um, sacrifice yeah. in order to be ideal, ideological about his craft? I would say, craft? Uh, yeah, when I think about it, I would say a lot of them are still considered starving artists, but some of them make it a very lucrative career. Like the mm-hmm. uh, gentleman who has been doing it for 30 years making surfboards in San Diego, he's in high demand. And surfboards are not cheap. So, yeah, he, he does pretty well. So I suppose that goes to the, the consumer, really. That's where the buck stops. Yeah. Are people willing to pay for that? Absolutely. I just went to a woman who's an artisan in our town of making frames for paintings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you pay as much for the frame sometimes as the painting. Yeah. <laughs> but she is an artisan. And I just had such mm-hmm. a great experience being with her as she figured out what's the best frame for this piece of art. And then, yeah. you know, it's expensive, but it's it's a craft, and it's a beautiful thing. I mean, since we were here in Washington, I was in Spokane recently and uh, stayed at the Davenport Hotel. Oh, yeah. And you, and you look at their lobby, it is the most ornate craftsmanship. It, you can't replace it. You know, there's two dimensions of that. You uh-huh. can you can pay to make it, but you can also take time to enjoy it. Uh-huh. That's just as important. And, yeah. and you did exactly that because oh, yeah. I've been in that hotel lobby there. The, yep. Everybody is just, in Spokane is so proud of the Davenport Hotel. Mm-hmm. And you look around and 
your jaw literally drops. Yeah, the photos did not do justice for that. It was just so that remarkable. Right. Made you real prideful of being an American, and that's kind of why I did this book. You wrote that America is the home of innovators, pioneers, and game changers. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is among the craftsmen and the craftswomen that you met. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are a couple examples of your favorites? Um, well, they're all in my home now, and they're all my offices decorated with all these. It's uh, that's basically what was the vision. I said my office looks really empty. I'm very obsessed with America, if you can't tell, and I wanted a piece of every city. And You've so, got a piece of every city. Every city is in there. As done by handmade All craftspeople. All handmade craftsmanship. Oh Even signs from Indianapolis because, you know, it's a crossroads America. So I made a road sign. Paint a picture. Take me into yeah. your office. What would strike me? What would I see if I walked into your office Well, right you now? see a graffiti art saying Brooklyn. You get, And I learned all this by just doing and being with the experts, but I went into it not knowing a thing. Like latte art here in Seattle, it was uh, one of the hardest things to do. I couldn't, like, just wing it. <laughs> but it, but if that if but, that latte is in your office, it's flat now and there's nothing. Yeah, nothing no, in the no, form. it's just a cup. I have the cup in there. Um, but, yeah, I have a vinyl record from Cleveland because that was considered the rock and roll uh, birth capital. Yeah. I have, like, a music note made out of metal from Memphis. The one that really hits home for me is the uh, I made a Indian pottery in New Mexico, and I was a native who taught me her uh, something that she's learned oh, from her grandmother. You wrote that it was a yeah. Native American woman who was tearful about yeah. connecting. She was yeah. literally tearful to share her art with you. Absolutely, that her Absolutely. work could make that leap from one culture to another. Yeah, that's kind of why I do what I do because you see people smile on their faces. Daniel Sadiqi is the son of an Afghan immigrant who learned a wide variety of skills in all 50 states, from coal mining in West Virginia to shooting archery with the Cherokee Nation and singing with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. He writes about his American adventures in his books, Piecing Together America, and 50 Jobs in 50 States. So when you talk about craftsmanship Uh and you talk about artists... Mm Are, are artists, is that a different category, or is it no. the artists that are doing the crafts? Yeah, artists doing the crafts. Okay, so yeah. you met with 70 artists, yep. and you reported on them in your book. What if? What's the takeaway there, Daniel? What did the artists have in common? What motivated them? They're motivated by their work. They, they right. do it because it's their passion of creating, and uh, they realize that they could be um, a symbol of their community, uh-huh. and that's what carries on cultures and, and traditions. Were they, were they aware of that, that they're they're carrying on a tradition? Yeah, I mean, some of them, some may, maybe not. Because uh, I think craftspeople are keenly aware that the kids don't want to do it anymore. The arts and crafts movement in England, it's just down to a couple of people. Yeah, yeah. I would say the same as pretty much here as yeah. well. Uh, like that vinyl record company in Cleveland, that was the only one left. Or the uh, cigars in, in Tampa, I rolled cigars in the last factory left, and that's what founded Tampa. You probably know this, but... You got um, you rolled a cigar in yeah, Tampa. Yeah, wow. with real Cubans. I mean, they're, they're... I rolled a cigar in Cuba, and yeah. I could not get over how beautiful it was. It was so yeah. gorgeous to see those calloused hands yep. and that beautiful, the, the leaves that had veins on them, just like the, like the back of my exactly. hand. Exactly, yeah. And then to roll that and then to to lick it and to, yep. to stick it and then to put it with 20 others and yep. put a little organic tie little, around them. Yep. Oh, my goodness, yep. I did, did that. I did that, and uh, I didn't know that's kind of what founded uh, Tampa. It was just a very small fishing community originally. I, I had no idea. 
and they're down to one last they're cigar one, roller. They're one last one. So yeah. One last cigar roller. How are no, we gonna... not. It was one last <laughs> cigar. There was three over there at the okay, time. Oh, but it was funny to see them smoking like maybe uh, three foot long cigars while they're rolling. You know, I'm sure oh, you've yeah, seen well, something like that. That's why there's only three of them left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick yeah. Steves. We're talking <laughs> with author Daniel Siddiqui. And Daniel is touted as the most traveled person in America. And I'm, I'm beginning to believe that. His latest book is called Piecing Together America. You can find more about his work and the tours he offers at his website. It's called livingthemap.com, livingthemap.com. So, Daniel, we're talking about these artists and these crafts. Tell me a, a case that you met an artist that just inspired you, that, that you could imagine actually if you were going to live your life again doing that craft. Mm, I'm not a crafty person. I, I wouldn't say I, it's something that would I would. Okay. I wish I could probably become one, mm-hmm. but uh, I think my craft is writing. <laughs> I like go. writing a lot. Yeah. I, I like doing research just like you do. Yeah. As a little kid, when I was just six years old, I used to just stare at maps. And now, as an adult, that map is a reality. And I'm connecting with people. I'm probably the most alert and awake when I travel, just because I want to observe as much as I can, absorb as as much as I can. And connecting with all walks of life is what makes it so enlightening. And I learn something new from every single person. And you learn a lot about yourself when you hear from others, too. Amen. Yeah. You've, you've got it. I can see why you're so inspired to write yeah. this and share this. Yeah. And it's a lot of it is an ability to meet people and talk with them mm-hmm. and, and celebrate what they do. Yeah. I love this quote that somebody said, it's better to be, instead of trying to be interesting, be interested. Yeah. And that's sort of that, your forte is being interested. True. Yeah. And that started from the very, very get-go. So you've also done jobs in 50 yeah, states. You've actually... Did you actually make money on these jobs? Yeah. So you... 45 out of the 50 jobs paid me. And mm. I started in the midst of the recession with not a dime to my name. Right. I was just planning to just sleep in this Jeep that I just bought off of Craigslist and uh, was never asking for a paycheck. But every employer saw how committed I was to working and, and being the best I could. Yeah. And they said, yeah, we can't leave you without a check. You put an honest work here whether it's making medical equipment in Minnesota or making cheese in Wisconsin or working at a winery in Napa Valley. So this is another way to travel, to really learn and gain a, a empathy for, yeah. for a, a different slice of society is to roll up your sleeves and work there. Personally, I think it's the best way to connect with people yeah. and really understand their livelihoods. You wrote about being a cowboy, a coal miner. Yeah. You picked green peppers with migrant laborers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, <laughs> that is so... Yeah industrious of you. So you can come into, how do you do that? You come into Oklahoma and and how do you look for a job? What do you do? Well, my theme was always to focus on a iconic industry. You know, what really shapes the economy of the state. Uh So Oklahoma oil. So I got a chance to be a roustabout. I I didn't know what a roustabout was, but I Google searched it. I said, let's apply to be a roustabout. And I called up some of these local companies and they said, yeah, we need an extra set of hands. Sure. And it was dangerous working on an oil rig. It was it was dangerous, very obviously dirty job. But it was just like putting myself in their shoes that gave me the appreciation of their work. Plus, it's a different world. In, in some cases, it could be some real artsy, fartsy people in a big city, sophisticates. In another place, it could be people with calluses on their yeah. hands. Yeah, it could absolutely. Be, it could be I, people that are, are hard to employ elsewhere. Yeah. And you get to work side by side with them. 
Yeah, like I said, all walks of life. Um, 50 states, of, 50 jobs. Tell, yeah. tell me about a couple of the ones that were most impactful. Um, so did, I did the Border Patrol in Arizona, the busiest sector in the country. Wow. So I got to see all the ins and outs of that and the sacrifices people make to come across the border. I've seen... Uh, Whoa, now wait a minute. So you're there trying to keep them out, and you gained uh, respect for how hard, how dedicated they are to getting in. Well, I, I appreciate the Border Patrol because sure. 10% of those that come out are not very good people. <laughs> right. So, you so of course, the 90 that really actually come out for a better life and make a earning yeah. for their family, I yeah. get it. Yeah. The other ones were like, I, mean, I had fun jobs, like working as a weatherman on NBC uh, morning show. They put me at the 4 a.m. slot because they knew nobody watches that time. But uh, at least I had the opportunity to do it. So um, you stood in front of one of those green, green screens, green screens yeah, and you just, pointed at the green screen as if there's a map there and you go, yep. clouds are moving in. And Ohio's unpredictable. That's why I chose to do that state yeah. because uh, I was uh, in Cleveland. So the lake effects. So every every day was a different day there. Yeah. But you, I got to see the personalities. You know, you got to yeah. figure out where your personality fits in terms of a profession. Right. And you, I don't know if you, you, you probably didn't negotiate for a better wage. You probably no, just did no, it. whatever they whatever pay I could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you probably, a great part of your earnings was what you learned. I mean, if you think uh, yeah, about I, it. I, I, no, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. You were I well mean, paid in life experience. Yep. Like I said, the... I mean, living the map is is my website, and that was my dream is to really live out this map that I used to stare at as such a young kid. Not just the country, the whole world, but of course, my capacity is just America. <laughs> I can't do it all. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with author Daniel Siddiqui, and his website is livingthemap.com, and, and that's his middle name. His book is called Piecing Together America, and I'm just so intrigued by this. I mean, I always think I'm really a very lucky, privileged, blessed person to find my niche and do what I love. But the downside is I've only done one thing, basically, since I was a kid. I love it. But what a cool thing to be able to circulate Mm -hmm. all through society and in 50 states in this country get to know what's going on. Well, I've seen the the good and the bad. Um, Bad actually is more intriguing to me. Just because it's that much more different, and I'm somebody who cares about people deeply. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I was on the 50 Jobs trip uh, working with a dietitian in Mississippi, which is classified as the most obese state in the country. Mm-hmm. And that experience inspired me to go back two years later and train the most obese town for a 5K road race. So I went to a very small community, Pickens, Mississippi, town of 1,500 people. Right. And I held a town hall meeting. And I said, I'm going to train your, your community for a 5K turkey trot. And what did they say? And only seven people participated the first day, yeah. and it grew to 150 a month later. And now, eight years later, they have it every year. And there's probably people alive today because of that change in lifestyle. Four, four people passed away that month I was there alone. And 98% of that town was diabetic. Holy and, cow. And, uh, yeah, and that kind of makes your heart feel like... I got to do something that the best, and I did this as a volunteer, yeah. you know, but yeah. I was passionate. I'm a collegiate athlete, yeah. long distance runner. Uh, and I thought I'd apply what I've known and have taken for granted my whole life. Daniel, what is your takeaway from all of this, from all of your travels? Uh, we're, we're out of time now, but I would just love to, to finish with essentially how, how is it? How is it? I love the thought of transformational travel. Yeah. I think this has been transformational for you. How? Yeah, so I felt very stuck graduating from college. I went through 120 rounds of job interviews. 
and got zero offers. Then I decided to write 18,000 coaches, collegiate coaches, asking for a job opportunity, and I only got a volunteer position. And that changed my life because I moved from California to Chicago, work at Northwestern, and it made me realize how big this world is, right? this country specifically. And I haven't felt stuck ever since. So it's just knowing that I should never limit myself, and a lot of people do feel that mm-hmm. they are putting themselves in a bubble. Because it's pretty bold. You could go to Montana, you could go to Tennessee, you could go to New Hampshire, yep. and you could meet people, you could uh, learn, you could broaden, you could contribute, you could you, get a job. You can have any type of life you want in America. I mean, it's so diverse in terms of the landscapes, mm-hmm. the job opportunities, the people that you would be. I mean, I built furniture with Amish people in Pennsylvania, did coal mining in West Virginia, worked as a football coach in Alabama. I've, I've seen it all, and you, you can really do anything you want in this country, and that's why it is the land of opportunity. Well, thanks for traveling all the way up here to just north of Seattle, and it's been a delight talking to you. Best wishes, pleasure. Daniel. Thank you so much. Daniel Siddiqui shares his photos and writes about learning the crafts and sampling the local foods of every major U.S. city in his book, Piecing Together America. His website is livingthemap.com. Your own travels might inspire you to write a haiku or two about what you experience. Here's some haiku that our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have sent us that we thought you'd like to hear. Terry Toland from Vancouver, Washington, sent us a few haiku after visiting an old friend in Sweden for the first time in 36 years. It was also the first time their wives got to meet each other. Tired train, greeting time. Anxious wives hug new, old friends. Home to sandwich cake. First stop, the sweet shop. On to 300-year home, as if yesterday. Friends looking seasoned, brothers for 36 years, talk flows like water. Barbara Schrafer of Clearwater, Florida, got inspired to write an evocative haiku while enjoying the coastal scene on Inoshima Island in Japan's Sagami Bay. Crows call in the wind. Brown earth smudges the gray cloud sea. Fine mist sprays to sky. And Natalia Warren of Orlando, Florida, describes what it was like to visit Ukraine back in 2006. It's where her World War II refugee parents came from. She says she'll never forget looking out over the wheat fields of Ukraine to see the inspiration for the colors of their national flag. Blue sky, golden fields, flag unfurling at sunrise. Free. Invincible. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Gretchen Strout read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions. Details are at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a community of well-traveled friends who love sharing tips and comparing notes. That's our online community. It's called the Rick Steves Travel Forum. You can read trip reports, reviews, and share itinerary planning questions. Peruse the topics or post your own submissions. It's at ricksteves.com and you're invited.